The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here, and welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world. And with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. And today, I'm very excited to have as my guest, Jeff DeGraff, and we'll be discussing his new book, Making Stone Soup, How to Jumpstart Innovation Teams. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Jeff. His life reads like an innovation playbook. The pages are speckled with failures followed by great successes, all because of the mantra he adopted at an early age from one of my favorite icons, Walt Disney, which is keep moving forward. Jeff is a professor of management and organizations at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. He's an author, as I said, and a speaker and an advisor to hundreds of top organizations, including American Airlines, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, General Electric, Prudential, Pfizer, and many more. And Jeff is also known as the Dean of Innovation because of his influence on the field. So, Jeff, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Thanks for having me on, Olivia. Nice to meet you. Thank you. So, what an inspiration. What was the inspiration for your title, Stone Soup? You know, it's interesting because the one book that I remember more than any book as giving me great insight into collaborative innovation is the first book I learned to read in kindergarten. It was a book called Stone Soup, and it was, a, it was very popular back in the day. And it was about three wily soldiers who had come back from some, some unnamed war, and they had a cauldron, and they placed it by the well in the city center. And all of these kind of war-torn villagers were very wary. And they came out and said, what are you doing? And they filled the cauldron with water and put a stone in it. And they said, we're making sumptuous stone soup. And the villagers said, well, that doesn't look good. You know, why don't you put carrots in it? And of course, the wily soldiers said, well, carrots and make it better. And then somebody has potatoes and lettuce and a chicken and you get the whole thing. And everybody now is contributing to it. And of course, it turns out to be this sumptuous stone soup. And I thought it was a perfect metaphor for how innovation really happens. It's not this sort of Homeric, you know, lone genius kind of thing. It's everybody adding little bits of things that are quite different from each other into, into the broth, if you will, making something quite extraordinary. So I thought it was a nice metaphor for how teams really create, uh, you know, breakthrough products and services and solutions. Oh, that's great. And it actually sort of speaks to something we've talked about on the show before, which, and they now show this in quantum physics, which is that the 
whole is often more than the sum of the parts when you bring together people collaborating and you know there's sort of this we space that gets created where new ideas emerge so I, really... I think that's true i think there's a there's a real controversy i think around this and, and it's very interesting to me because i was very early on in the collaborative innovation space, I worked on, on projects like AppleNet, which, of course, became iTunes and a lot of these other projects in the early 1980s. But part of the reason that this is so important to put these collaborative forces together is that it produces constructive conflict. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we see over and over again in, in places that innovation happens is it's these hybrids that happen kind of in the white space. But they don't happen in this really nice, harmonious way. They happen in a much more yeasty kind of a way. And that's part of the challenge, if you will, of the ubiquitous kind of Internet community where we're, we're talking about sort of the, the, you know, the creative publics. And when we start looking at the research on these creative publics, a lot of what's missing is this constructive conflict. So when we look at things like patents, a lot of the patents that are coming out from these communities are very low-quality patents. They're not strong patents. And we believe the reason for this might simply be that these communities are not fully engaged. They're not mm. having that kind of, you know, that difficult conversation. Well, so I like that sense that you, you need diversity. How, how do you get that, and how do you build a team? Maybe what are, what are some of the features of a team that can actually have constructive conflict well i think i you know i'm i'm associated with a with a very well-known theory called the competing values framework and from which that since we've been studying this for about 30 years and it does everything from looking at how teams are formed actually to predicting stock prices what are called market to book variances but the Mm. way you have to look at forming a team to just sort of putting it in the everyday parlance you need four things to come together but they're they're not necessarily things that align nicely. So the first thing you need in in what's called the forward position is you need somebody or a group of people or a perspective, a dominant logic that's driven by vision. I want you to think about like Steve Jobs or Walt Disney, right? They're driven by a vision. A lot of this is kind of impossible. It's high failure, high, but, but high return if you hit it. Now Mm -hmm. contrast that with the other parts of your organization that uh, are driven by process. And you need process because complexity is difficult to manage when you get to scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, failure is not an option. Usually these are turnover businesses, so they have large scope and scale. This is the ability to actually make something. So I want you to think just right off the bat about these two perspectives in the organization. So maybe one is in strategy or marketing. Maybe that's the forward position, which we call the create position, the vision position. And maybe the other group is in manufacturing or supply chain. Mm-hmm. One group is trying to introduce variation or deviance or diversity. The other group is trying to create standards or eliminate it. These are not <laughs> issues of style. This is the reason why in economies, when, when innovation goes up or what's called the economy at risk or growth goes up, quality goes down, efficiency goes down. And so these trade-offs happen all the time in organizations, and most leaders try and avoid them, Olivia. What leaders need to do with these kind of, uh, I've only given you two of the four perspectives, but these perspectives, leaders need to create a positive form of conflict here. Not one side trying to destroy the other, but this is what needs to sync up in order for these uh, innovative ideas to get bigger. Well, so what are some features of a team that 
can do this well? Maybe personalities or variation in the types sure. of people? It needs, I think, four types of people. It needs visionaries. Mm-hmm. It needs process people who can take those visions and turn it into scope and scale. It needs goal-oriented people, kind of MBAs, the people I teach right, on a regular <laughs> basis. Very ambitious, very financially driven, short-term. And it takes community builders who are, are held together by values. These four propositions together are pretty much the, the, the basic elements, the basic ingredients to stone soup, if you will, to making a high-performing team. But the other part of it is people are going to be good at different parts of the innovation process. So mm-hmm. your visionaries are going to be great at the beginning, but as you get closer to scale and you eliminate variation, it's going to be the, it's going to be the process people or the control people, so on and so forth. And a mistake that organizations routinely make is they keep their teams intact, which is a terrible mistake. What you want to do is platoon people in and out of your team as those skills become relevant, as those oh. points of view become relevant. Think of it like a, any sports that you follow. You know, all the players don't play all the time. Mm-hmm. There's roles or an orchestra or any metaphor you want to make. That makes sense. And do you find pe- teams that are diverse as far as age, maybe gender, nationality, all of that also adds to the richness? It sure does. And in fact, I write a lot about this. I'm, I'm very suspicious of checklists for innovation. And the reason is very simple. You know, what makes a great medical device company, that kind of innovation isn't going to work in a very fashionable restaurant. It's a completely different set of skills. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of sort of writing out there that really isn't borne out in any research. And if you, if you think about it carefully, it's not borne out in your own experience. Different right. people succeed in different situations. So the only thing that we know that innovation communities have in common, and this is true everything from teams to large cultures, like, you know, the American culture or city-states, why 30 places on the planet produce most of the intellectual property, what they have in common is diversity of all forms, cultural, cognitive, professional. They don't agree. That's, that's great. And it sounds like there'd be a lot of opportunities for personal growth and, and, and a need for that kind of uh, self-reflection to just not get the egos in the way all the time. It's very funny you'd say that. One of the books, not, not the, I've written a couple books since, but I was the spokesperson a few years back for PBS, so maybe some of your listeners saw me trying to beg for money in their local town. But I wrote a book called Innovation You. And I wrote the book after all of these kind of textbooks that I've written on innovation. And I wrote it to say the same things that apply to creating a very creative company apply to you. And I basically wrote the book because when the Great Recession came, I saw amazing people who did amazing things who should have never been out of work get out of work because they couldn't apply the very things that they did at work to themselves. So I, so I absolutely think it applies to individuals as well as teams, as well as organizational cultures and competencies. Oh, great. Well, so in your book, you say innovation is the only value proposition that has a shelf life. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, if you think about innovation, it's a, it's a time-based form of value. And I, I, won't, I won't bore your readers with this. There's an economic term for this called a convex form of value, which means it's very hard to measure. And the reason it's hard to measure is innovation happens in the future for which we have no data. 
Mm-hmm. So ask your, you know, ask yourself what's going to happen with, you know, the the virus in Africa. What's going to happen with the Middle East situation? What's going to happen, you know, with uh, what with the, sort of the challenges in the Balkans? And, and the answer is you don't know. And the reason you don't know is there's no data on the future. So what people do in conventional management practices, Olivia, is mm-hmm. they, they do the number one form of resistance to innovation, which is excessive data collection. <laughs> have you been to the meeting about the meeting? Have, have you read the report about the report? While you're stuck in the planning cycle, other people are launching the experiment because the only way to learn about the future is to try and send the boats. That's why venture capitalists hedge with lots of little different experiments that are highly differentiated. Now, the second challenge of time is that an innovation is only an innovation for a moment in time. Think about, think about, the, you think about what's going on in the world with the new iPhone and think about what's going to happen this Christmas with our friends at Apple. All the stuff that's going to come out just in time for Christmas, think about all the stuff you bought for your family last year. It's all going to be rubbish, right? It was an innovation last year, but this year it's rubbish, and that's the innovation cycle, right? So it, has a, it goes sour like milk. And mm-hmm. finally, innovation doesn't happen, doesn't occur in organizations in nice straight lines. And there's a lot of economics about this. I won't bore you with this. But, but if, you, if you think about this, when does an innovation really happen in an organization or actually in a person? So let's use that example of Apple again. Does mm-hmm. anybody remember what Apple was trading at in 1997? It was yeah. almost bankrupt. Right. Yep. So the right. risk and reward of trying something radical happens when you're in a crisis. So the same is true if you've got a divorce or you have a drinking problem, right, or your company's trading below $5 like Apple was. And it also happens at the other end of the bell curve when things are going very, very well. And that's a di- sort of a, a different explanation. But still, it's when risk and reward is reversed. So what I want your listeners to understand is innovation does not happen when things are in the normal cycle. Mm. It happens when things are in these abnormal times in the cycle. And that's what makes it so doggone hard for most people to get a handle on this. Well, and do you think, like Steve Jobs, I don't think he was driven by money. He really just was such a visionary. I wonder if that's... And he seemed to be almost a little bit of a solo inventor, that very rare person. But, yeah. um, but I think because the risks are so high, would you say that most of the really innovative things we've seen have, have not been driven by money, but maybe just by this desire for something new? I think new? So. in some cases, I have a great story about this. Your listeners might like this. When I was a very young man, uh, I, I have a Ph.D. in what's called Applied Integrated Systems, and this is before the web. This is beginning of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I was on the advisory group at Apple when I was very, very young, 25 years old, and I got oh. to meet Steve. I was on one of those groups. And mm-hmm. I remember uh, he was this – is, this is when he started being pushed out, and I remember I was at the, the first meeting I ever was at with him. And people were sort of, uh, you know, because I'm the young guy in the group, people are, are treating me like, well, you know, he, he can be like this. He can be sort of petulant, if you will. Mm-hmm. And after everyone was done talking, I remember making this comment sort of almost under my breath, but he wasn't wrong. <laughs> everybody just <laughs> looked at me. Well, the point I'm trying to make here is that people like Jobs, people like, you know, like Walt Disney, Tesla, Visionary people are one type of innovator, and what they want is freedom. And this is why they create companies. In fact, Joseph Schumpeter, the famous economist, says this is why, why companies are started. It's what he calls the urge to the, the superior man. 
right? Mm-hmm. So if he was updating it, he'd say person, but you know what, what he meant. And yeah. so, but not all innovators are driven by freedom. If you look at control-based innovators or what we call aft position innovators, they're usually driven by a deep sense of responsibility. Mm. You know, we're saving the world. And boy, don't you love those people when something goes wrong, you know, there's a disease in the world and we got to go fix that. Some people, like a lot of the MBAs that we teach, are, are driven by a sense of, <clears throat> by a sense of uh, gaining resources. Whether you like it or not, you know, we live in a capitalist society and that actually drives an enormous amount of innovation and explains a lot of our success as a culture, if you think about how our culture was established. And, of mm. course, some people are driven by a deep sense of values, and those people, what they want is to create harmony. And this is like our kids. Think about our children. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about myself as a baby boomer, and we're really a meritocracy. We all competed for everything. So our whole, uh, the zeitgeist of our era was, you know, <laughs> nature is red and fang and claw. It was very competitive. But our yeah. children have opted out. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they have zip cars. They're, you know, they don't marry. I don't know if you've been following any of this. Uh, you know, they're a post, what we call post-capitalist society. So all of these groups are capable of amazing innovations. And cultures mm-hmm. and individual groups have footprints, if you will. They do mm-hmm. all four, but they're left-handed or right-handed. But some of our heroes are, are I think, uh, really play to our own sensibilities. So if Jobs is your hero, maybe what you want is freedom. If, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if, uh, if Mother Teresa is your hero, maybe what you want is harmony and so on and so forth. Well, that makes sense. And we're, uh, believe it or not, we're up on our first break. So let's do that now. Uh, just to let you know, my guest is Jeff DeGraff. We're talking about making stone soup, how to jumpstart innovation teams and you can learn more about Jeff and his work at www.jeffdegraff.com that's J-E-F-F D-E-G-R-A-F-F dot com and we'll be right back When it comes to business you'll find the experts here Voice America Business Network Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. What do business and sports have in common? Both are based on competition, and the goal of each is the same, to win. If you're in business, you need an edge over your competitors. You need to innovate and improve. You need to make adjustments to stay ahead of your competition. Tune in to The Business Locker Room with Kelly Riggs. Get the playbook and the coaching you need to improve your business performance. The Business Locker Room airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
the business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm with my guest, Jeff DeGraff. We're talking about innovation, making his book, Making Stone Soup, How to Jumpstart Innovation Teams. And before the break, we were talking a little bit about what drives innovation and the inspiration for the book um, and some of the different types of things that drive innovation. Um, one of the things I like to ask you, Jeff, in your book, you, you say innovative solutions require that we connect the dots horizontally across the functions and regions of the organization. What do you mean by that? Well, well the biggest challenge of innovation is this concept called dominant logic. And if it's and if you if it's hard for somebody to understand this kind of abstract idea, have you ever talked to anybody about politics or religion? <laughs> have you ever changed anybody's mind? So dominant logic applies in all areas of our life. So if you talk to an engineer, the dominant logic is that innovation is a hard, lumpy object. And if you talk to a financier, innovation is all about making money. If you talk to somebody who is a designer, it's all about sort of the fashionability and the coolness of innovation and so on and so forth. The challenge of making innovation happen, if you will, is syncing all of this up. So one group left alone may, may create amazing designs, but they're not buildable. One group left alone may build something that's very elaborate, a very elaborate system, but it doesn't actually do anything substantially new. It's very much an, an, an elaboration or an incremental articulation of what we already have. So mm-hmm. the, the key is to create these great solutions, we have to look in our blind spots. We have to engage the dominant logic of the very people who make us crazy. So <laughs> finance people have to learn to love the HR people. And, you know, your, your marketing people need to love your manufacturing people. And this is also true of cultures. We vilify cultures the wrong way. If you think about this for a minute, <clears throat> think about the American culture. Our culture was created because of uh, immigrants. In fact, there's an old saying that uh, the history of innovation in America is the history of immigration. People came to America to find Gold Mountain, you know, make their, to make their fortune, or they came to escape the czar, or they came here, sadly, in chains. And in my family's case, we thought we were here, right? We, my, I'm partially Native American. So hmm. the point is, in our culture, we have this very ballistic culture where innovation is very fast. It's very confrontational. There are winners and losers in our culture. But I want you to think about Chinese culture for a minute. Right in Chinese Chinese culture, incidentally, is one of the most innovative cultures in the history of the world. They invented, they domesticated all the animals. They invented basic math. They invented gunpowder, roads, naval engineering. Go on, go down the list. But their culture is created in a very different way. Their culture is created by the connection or the clan connections between people, the searching and reapplying of, of information, the development of people. So it's a much more sort of harmonious history than ours. Now, the point I'm trying to make is very simple. If you're trying to invent something in today's economy, a global thing, you're trying to work on something global, if you do it here, 
and you think you're going to sell it in China, you're going to have all kinds of problems. And a lot of American companies do because the sensibilities are completely different. You're building into the blind spot. And Chinese companies have the same problem with us. So it's not only that it's the reunion of opposites within the company or within an organization. It's the reunion of opposites in much larger groups like nation states or like the way in which Microsoft competes in this very kind of American way, now confronted with the way in which the Northern Europeans compete in this sort of open source kind of a thing. What happens is the strength that you have also brings a tremendous blind spot and weakness because of your dominant logic. And the only way to get over that is to hook up or to connect with people who have a whole bunch of different ideas than you do and to actually listen to them, to become a whole together. So it almost sounds like the team of rivals concept where you want to just hear from people where, what you're missing or... Yeah, I mean, if you think about this, if and I even like to, I even like to watch people in their marriages. You know, I hear <laughs> I have a student who stopped by the other day, and he was telling me that he found his soulmate, and I thought mm. that was a very interesting comment. I said, "What does that mean?" And it's, he said, "Well, we we like all the same things. We agree. We agree on everything." <laughs> and I said, well, "Hold on, I've been married for a long, long time." I said, "I'm not sure that's your soulmate." I think mm-hmm. the person who helps you become whole is a person who helps you grow. And usually that's a person who kind of has some, some you know, some, some uh, ideas and capabilities as sort of missing pieces that you don't have. Mm-hmm. And together you become sort of whole. Whereas, uh, you know, every, everybody just getting along, you're going to continue sort of going down the path that you are until the time comes when you're trying to grow. So... I think this concept of difference and conflict is at the heart of my work, and I see it as wonderfully constructive. Mm. Well, yeah, I and I've seen it go really well, but I've also seen it go poorly, as we were mentioning earlier, where there's ego. So I think it does really, and this is kind of the focus of my show being on human capital, is that people, given the opportunity to work in collaborative teams, can make money for their companies, but they can also benefit personally, I think, and, and grow personally by seeing maybe where they have blind spots or where oh, they I think get that's reactive. True. It's very interesting. I was part of a group, and I'm still part of it, that's become very well known here at Michigan um, called Positive Organizational Scholarship. And this is where this whole movement of full engagement and positivity, and this mm. is going back like 20 years when they started doing the research. But you know what the heart of that, Olivia, is this idea of positive deviance. But the key here is the word positive. It, it's, you're celebrating differences. You're not mm-hmm. trying to destroy the other side. Isn't that the problem when we look at you know, politics these days all around the world? Yeah. It's one group trying to destroy, use their dominant logic to destroy or to, or to subdue a, different, a sort of a different worldview. Right. And what it does is those groups inevitably fail to grow, they fail to innovate, and over time, they, you know, we know the history of this, they go away. Yeah, wow, that's great. Well, I do want to dive into your your model for innovation, the innovation genome. Um, first of all, why do you think it's good to have a model? And then I'd love you to talk more about it. Um, I developed the model because very early on, and incidentally, my model was built on the model of a couple of other men here at Michigan. Mm. I developed the model uh, not to be a model, to be a map. These are sometimes called meta-models. 
Okay. Because what would happen is when people talk about innovation, they're never talking about the same thing. So somebody's talking about reengineering and somebody's talking about, you know, this whole idea of, of collaborative open innovation networks and somebody's talking about, you know, acquisition agendas and somebody's talking about radical design and they're, they're not talking about the same things. They don't have the same kind of people. They don't have the same kind of metrics, the strategy, the resources, completely different. Mm-hmm. And so I needed a way to put all of them on a map. So it's not that my uh, model, if you will, is saying, oh, do this. It's more like saying, are you going north, south, east, or west? And what I did with the model, and building on these two other, uh, these, the work of two other professors, and then another professor, another well-known professor built his work on mine, is basically saying, look, there's a direct road between what you do as an individual person. There are four types of people in general. Create people, think Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Control people, think, uh, you know, think uh, Ray Kroc who built McDonald's. You know, it's all turnkey, one size, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, one's called the compete form of innovation. So I want you to think about maybe Jack Welch, who ran GE, kind of a bare-knuckle guy. Mm-hmm. And one form is what's called collaborate. And I, you know, I want you to think about, you know, Mother Teresa or the people, you know, or, you know, Singapore Air or the people who built Facebook. Well, these forms of, of, of leadership are competing. And that's why Robert Quinn gave them the name, the Competing Values Framework, which is a very well-known framework. Well, based on that, there was another set of research that was done for years, which is, which is on uh, culture and competency. So, there's a man named Kim Cameron and another colleague of mine named C.K. Prahalad, who was a very famous strategist who passed away a couple of years ago. And what they discovered was that leaders produce culture and competency around them. But the challenge, of course, Olivia, is that the culture and competency they produce looks like them. Yeah. And that becomes the blind spot. Mm-hmm. My work, my work is, and the studies were often referred to as the Holonics studies. My work mm. was saying, well, how does this affect the strategy or the way in which a firm innovates? And how does this affect the type of, of, of value it produces? Now, you have to, your, read, your listeners have to forgive me here for a minute. I'm a business school professor. So the <laughs> value that we're going to look at is the kind of value that you'd look at on Wall Street. But in fairness, a lot of our work has been applied to higher education and particularly to arts organizations like the League of American Orchestras, the American Museum Association, right? We do a lot of work with these, with these groups. So the notion is what an individual does affects what a group does. What a group does largely predicts how it interacts with other groups and the value it produces. That's what the innovation genome is. It's a map that says, how do you move from here to there? And what are the types of things that people do to move from here to there? including all the kind of mechanisms and machinations that, uh, that large companies, the kind of companies I work with, very large, complicated companies do. Well, so what are some of the aspects of each of the four? So let's, we could start with create. Yeah, create. Create, I want you to think about all those people you know who are, who are you know, into design. They want to be new they want to try things that are, that are amazing and untried before. One of my favorite stories around this is last year when the Bose was uh, discovered at CERN, the large, uh, the large uh, nuclear research place in Switzerland, the God particle, if you will, there right. are seven Nobel laureates. Two of them believed that when they started the Large Hadron Collider, that it would create black fissures and destroy the universe as we know it. 
Hi, everybody. Get a beer right and pull the switch. See you in hell, Jurgen. Right? These are greens. They're crazy, right? Right. And or green organizations are Vera Wang and and you know Pixar and you know of these biotechs that are amazing. Well, the opposite, the control form of innovation. I want you to think of anything that's got to be turnkey. It's got to work every time. I want you to think about Boeing and their new Dreamliner that's going to fly for 50 years. It's got millions of moving parts made with 3D printing. The people who run, who are these kind of innovators, like to know the data. They're engineering kind of focused. They're they're reality-based. They're kind of, they seem pessimistic, but they're very realistic. They're the Mm -hmm. guys that actually make everything work, right? Mm -hmm. See the tension between the two? They need each other. The other group, which we call the control group, are kind of, they're really motivated by money or, or accomplishment, I should say. They're very aggressive, Oh, you ever been to one of the meetings of these guys? They're like drive-by shootings. I mean, PowerPoint mm. slides everywhere, you know, and it's all about <laughs> decision-making. So let it be written. So let it be done. Those guys, and they argue over everything. This is where Shakespeare's very unfortunate quote, dogs are made for the gripping comes in. I mean, that's what he was talking about. You know, mm. people with all the heat, but these are short-term innovators that mm. all, of the, all of the exchanges love them because they yeah. produce revenue in short periods of time. And, and you'll always know them by the teams. They love these kind of project teams, wind team and go team and strike force. And the guys mm. have nicknames like the great white shark and the mm. hitman and, you know, chainsaw and all, you know, they're like gangsters, but, but, but they drive, they create the capital required to get innovation going. They get momentum. And finally, the collaborate group, when you think about the collaborate group, you think about teachers and networkers and people who are nurturing kind of people. And these organizations, I think, in the modern day are organizations that are things like S.C. Johnson that's trying to make sure that we don't ruin the environment while we keep our homes nice and clean. Or W.L. Gore that doesn't really have an innovation function but makes Gore-Tex and this amazing stuff in these kind of communes. Or, or Linux that's got open source. And this is your kids. So these organizations, they have different kinds of mechanisms, and they produce different forms of value. So the create form of value is radical innovation and organic growth. The control form of value is efficiency and quality, the elimination of errors, if you will. The the compete form of value, of course, is profitability and speed. And the collaborate form of value is knowledge. We want to get smarter. And community, what holds us together? What do we believe in? What makes us us? That's interesting. And we're just a couple minutes before the break, but I'd love to ask you, you were saying from the Collaborate that that's really the, the kids. And, and I wonder if you think that the fact that most of the kids today have grown up with this connective technology that just wires their brains to naturally be more collaborative. I think they have. I also think the millennials are a reaction to their parents, the boomers. Mm. You know, the boomers competed for everything. We were the richest generation in the history of the world. We have a lot of stuff, and we argue a lot. We divorce more than any other generation. We hurt each other more. We have big cars and big. And they just didn't. They didn't want it. They opted out. Mm. So it's the windshield wiper. So three three things I think that are huge innovations that people aren't paying attention to with our kids. One. Uh, Starting in 2013, over half of all children born in the United States to women under 30 are outside of marriage. Young people aren't marrying. Number two, Mm -hmm. the fastest growing religious sector in the United States 
is atheism. And number three, when we look at where people want to work and how they consume, it's a post-capitalist society. They share things. So our children, and I'm not, I'm not being judgmental. I'm not trying to be provocative either. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get us to understand them. Mm-hmm. They've opted out of marriage, capitalism, and God the way we know it. So wow. they're creating a centerless world where they've opted out of our institutions. What we need to look for is what they're creating. So they're creating a world that doesn't have race. They're creating a world that doesn't have nationality. They're, they're creating a very different world. Whether it's good or bad or whether it will work, we'll have to wait and see. But it's a very yeah. different kind of a mechanism. So when we talk about gadgets and things like that, I, I look at that as kind of a, a very visceral or superficial form of innovation. The much oh. bigger innovations are kind of what's happening to us and how we're becoming whole as mm. a society, how this is all interacting. Right. And I also see a lot of force towards a different kind of money system, which would be a huge innovation. Oh, think about it. Think, you know, in the same way, you know, this wonderful book, Flash Traders, in the same way that the investment banks have all figured out, you know, how to game the system by having their own trading system, by trading a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. What your kids are doing is they're trading with bitcoins. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. It's making everybody crazy because they're saying we can't win in this system. So we're going to invent our own. And what's, the people who are going crazy are governments, because how do you collect tax on that? Right. So there's oh, a lot of boy. challenges we have to face here. We don't know how it ends. So there's the, con- the contrast to the control piece. Well, we are up on a break. And again, my guest is Jeff DeGraff. We're talking about his, some of the content of his book, uh, Making Stone Soup. How to Jumpstart Innovation Teams. You can check out more about Jeff at jeffdegraff.com. That's with two Fs. And we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's a sad fact that fraud is rampant in today's business environment. The headlines scream about once prestigious organizations falling victim to or crumbling due to the consequences of fraud. How do you keep fraud from affecting you and your business? Tune in to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Chris has over 30 years of fraud investigation experience, business intelligence, and is a renowned security consultant. 
Chris and his guests will inform you and help keep you from being the next statistic of fraud. Tune in Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm back with my guest today, Jeff DeGraff. We're talking about making stone soup, how to jumpstart innovative teams. And before the break, we were talking about the innovation genome and all the different uh, dimensions of that and the different characteristics. And now I'd like to focus on the method that you have where you say you, you want to add a small bit of creativity to ordinary everyday practices. And you have a great name for it. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I call it creativizing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we, we live in a world of martinizing and weatherizing. So I, I coined this term, this is this eponym. And, and, and i tell you why. Um, most of when people talk about innovation, I think they have this notion that kind of Einsteins are sitting in the basement and doing these unbelievable things. And I wanted to make it softer and easier because most of the really amazing things I think that happen in our world are by people making stone soup, kind of adding little bits of creativity to ordinary things. So what I tried to do is I, you know, I do all this work with these well-known companies, you know, the GEs of the world and the, you know, and the, the 3Ms and whatever. And, and there's a lot of complicated stuff we do. But I tried to boil it down to something that anybody can do. And I think there are basically four things that you have to do to innovate. And it could be your team. It could be your own life. It could be a, you know, a church group you belong to. It could be your company. But they're simple. The first one is you have to have high-quality targets. Now, Olivia, here's the challenge. I get into a lot of these groups, and, and they have these, these targets that are insane. I was with one the other day where uh, it was a not-for-profit, and one of the groups, uh, I had, a, I had a, a, a not-for-profit in Washington, D.C., of about 10 people, and I said, what's, what's your high-quality target? And they said, to eliminate poverty in America. <laughs> and I started to laugh. And I said, and how many, of there, how many people are there? You said 10. I said, well, maybe your first target ought to be, you know, eliminating poverty on 16th Street, you know, something, something that you can actually accomplish. Because, because, you know, planning to boil the ocean and extract gold isn't going to help you. On the other hand, just tweaking the dial a little bit doesn't help you either. So you have to have a target that's clear, and it's beyond what you can do now, but it's, it's also within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. That's the first step. And it's funny, Olivia, most teams or organizations believe that their senior leaders are on the same page. I've done this every, you know, every week for 30 years. You know, I have these two labs, the Innovatrium here in Ann Arbor and the one in Atlanta. And um, in all my 30 years, I've never, ever seen a senior team that was really on the same page. So this is very hard to get people to share a vision. Mm-hmm. So you've got to work at that. What exactly are we doing? Well, the second, and we've talked about this a little bit, you need deep and diverse domain experts. 
Innovation really isn't amateur hour. I, you know, there's a lot written about that. I had a reporter ask me the other day about one of my former students, Larry Page, who created this little company called Google. Uh. And they were asking me, well, weren't they amateurs? They were working in a garage in Palo Alto, and I had to laugh and say no. Serge and Larry were Ph.D. candidates at Stanford, you know, in the information technology department, which is, you know, whether it's MIT or Stanford, it's one of the best in the world. These are anything but amateurs. Okay, they're young, but they're not amateurs. And it doesn't mean you have to have a Ph.D. or be smart in that way. If you're trying to build a restaurant, talk to somebody who's built a restaurant. You're Mm -hmm. trying to be creative about something with daycare, talk to somebody who's got five kids, right? But the notion is you want people who know, and you don't want them all to agree. Remember our idea of constructive conflict. So you need Mm -hmm. deep and diverse domain experts. It's not amateur hour. I'm sorry it doesn't work that way. You can spend years trying to develop a capability, or you can find somebody that you know who already has it and will share it with you. Mm. Third step, take multiple shots on goal. Learn from the venture capitalists. You know, don't fall in love with your idea. Fall in love with the challenge. Fall in love with the opportunity. The, the whole idea of somebody who's got one good idea is better than 100 bad ideas never invented anybody. It never invented anything. 100 bad ideas are way better because what will come out of that are five or six good ideas. So what, the, way you, the way it works is you don't give these ideas too much time or too much money, and you spread them out, just like an, a venture capitalist would or an angel investor would, or like in sports. We, anybody who follows sports knows the team that takes more shots on goal usually wins the game. Mm-hmm. So what you're trying to do is very quickly figure out what works and what doesn't work and to make adjustments, right? This is part of the idea of accelerating the failure cycle, Right. Mm -hmm. Anybody who believes that they can do anything that you're doing that's new, like innovation, is developmental. Think about it. If you if you were trying to speak a foreign language or trying to play an instrument, you could be eight years old or 80. You got to go through the same failure cycle. So what Mm -hmm. innovators do is they accelerate it. So have you worked before you go there? Can I ask you, have you worked with leaders that just have no tolerance for risk all the time? Hmm. And there's some, and maybe that's a different conversation about, you know, how you Trojan horse projects, why you fail early and often and off Broadway, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of kind of cloak and dagger, quasi seditious things you have to do to make innovation work in a in a restrictive system, and the reason is simple: any organization is designed first to sustain itself and second mm-hmm. to grow. And that's why the time, the only real time that organizations want to innovate in the innovation cycle is when they're in the growth cycle, which means they're either failing or they have risk capital. They're growing very quickly. So Mm. the notion is part of when you launch these projects, to answer your question, Olivia, launch them where the organization is having a lot of trouble. Oh, so they're willing to give (laughs) give in, I guess. Yeah, where the risk and rewards first. Finally, you got to learn from your experience and experiments. How many people mm-hmm. do you know have the same problem happen over and over and over again, and they never get any smarter? This is my, you know, they don't do the after-action review. I have a friend who's been married five times, and he called me the other day and said he wanted to talk. He's having trouble. <laughs> Just <laughs> laughing and going, I don't think it's the women. You know, <laughs> at some point, you need to sit down and say, what do I need to do more of? What do I need to do less of? What do I need to start, stop, and hold? And finally, what simple rules can you divide? Now, that, that, those four steps, it doesn't mean you're going to innovate and make a million dollars. It means 
That's version one. That's cycle one. And innovators know that. that. There's kind of the first version, which is usually not very good. And then there's the second version, which is a lot better, and the third. And it's like anything that you learn to do, right? So mm-hmm. the object is, think about like an artist. You know, Have somebody take out a piece of paper and draw a picture of their spouse, and you can tell at what age they stopped learning to draw, right? Uh. <laughs> All artists know that it's a developmental process. Innovation is no different. It's just creativity at a larger scale. Four steps. Anybody can do them. And the book makes it very simple. It's like a cookbook. It's very short, a lot of pictures. <laughs> oh, good, good. So um, we were talking about uh, doing things, failing quickly. Uh, one of the places I worked, it was a credit card bank, and they, they actually had a little test center that replicated every process out in the bank, and we could do things very quickly. It was, And they made a lot of money doing that, so... That makes sense. That um... it's, a, it's a it's a great you know I again I come from this field I come from the field of you know uh, what would be what would become artificial intelligence and big data. Um, there's a challenge with that, and the challenge is there's so much variability in the world. Thank God that you can't yeah. simulate everything. This is why like capital partners etc. blew up and almost destroyed the economy before the economy blew up in in uh, 08. But the other part of it that doesn't that can't be machined is sense making. Mm-hmm sense-making. I call this the Mongolian barbecue effect. Now that everybody has big data and everybody can see everything, what happens is you think you're deviating, but you're not. You're just taking the same elements and searching and reapplying them. You're simply, you know, you're combining them into something that the next guy down the line finds inedible, right? You haven't broken the dominant logic. So what's happening more and more these days is the amazing ideas are kind of off the grid. They're mm. in the places where people are making sense of things in radically different ways. And some of those places are scary. Think about WikiLeaks, that's scaring people. Mm. And some of those places are not so scary, like we talked about, like Bitcoins. But these are very different interpretations of data. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think we're going. I think the whole idea that we're all going to be connected and that's going to solve all the problems, I come back to that's where I was when I started this journey in the early 80s. You know, I think I think that's a phase. I think where we're going to end up is sort of back to the, you know, the alchemist lab or, you know, the monastery or the artist community. We're going to we're going to come to these groups that are making sense of this in a very different way. Yeah. And and as you may know, my background is in data analysis and lots with big data and predictive modeling. And and what I started to see, and I think it's still happening, is that everything linear is being automated or outsourced. And so the real, really the only competitive advantage is if you are innovative. And the first book I wrote, Data Mining Cookbook, was I was encouraged to write it because I was taking statistical processes and innovating ways to use them better that sort of broke rules as far as statistics, but because the data sets were so large, it didn't matter and it made money for my company. <laughs> and, you know, at the time, it was like, I had somebody push back. I did, did a paper at a conference, and somebody goes, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, you know, my company doesn't care because I'm saving them millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And I think, I think what, we're, what we're looking at is the, the, the transactional um, creativity, if you will, that's flowing across the web is very incremental. And there's a lot of studies 
that say, oh, we're so much more collaborative. There's a big complexity study on Northwesterns, et cetera. But what they're, what, they're forgetting a couple of things. First of all, you know, five billion more people are on the web and have cell phones than they did 10 years ago. Duh, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> so gonna, but, but the second piece is once that initial baseline or threshold is set, because what happens is institutional logic kicks in and things become more incremental. Now it's those groups that are kind of, you know, it's kind of the opposite of what they used to tell us. You're probably not old to remember this, but in the 60s, there was this guy named Timothy Leary. And he oh, had this yeah. really famous kind of saying to young people. He said, you know, what, what, we're, what, we're, what we're really going to do here is, is you know, we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna turn on, tune in, and drop out. Well, I think where the real creativity is going is turn off, tune out, and drop in. It's, yeah. it's almost uh, yes. the opposite. So, so I think what we're going to find are these pockets. And again, it's, innovation can be really scary, too, because some of the people in these pockets are not nice. And they're trying mm. to do bad things. So we're going to have to deal with that, and that's kind of anxiety-producing. But hopefully the people are doing good things. There's more of that. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, me too. Cross your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, just so we have two minutes left. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you if it's maybe a lot, a, a big question, but maybe if you could answer briefly. Do you think smaller companies have an easier time innovating than large companies for some of those obvious reasons? Yes. And the reason is large companies have to protect the rent. They have to pay the shareholders. They have to maintain their equilibrium and their predictability. Small mm-hmm. companies can't compete on scope or scale, so they can only compete on differentiation. This goes back to Joseph Schumpeter's famous model of the Signoid S, or what's called creative destruction. The mm-hmm. problem is, so when you, if you're an investor, small companies grow much faster than large companies. Think about it. You know, the biotech that comes up with a miracle drug, it's a billion dollars. The biotech was a hundred million dollar biotech. But now you're a hundred million, hundred billion dollar company. That same billion dollars is a very small percentage. The problem is the risk of small companies is much greater. So if you can't innovate when you're a small company, I sincerely doubt you will innovate when you're a larger company. Just like mm-hmm. kids, the time to try stuff is before you know you got, you know, before you got a family and rent and all that other stuff. <laughs> and large companies, what they do is buy the smaller companies, and that's kind of how the ecosystem works. So they're made new by the children that they adopt. Well, so. Uh... Just in a couple seconds, can you suggest anything people could do, maybe just even to their workspace, to stimulate creativity? The first thing is that you can create common areas and don't plan. Don't, don't say it's designated. Take the cafeteria and say the cafeteria from three to five belongs to everybody. But mm. So they're working in a common workspace, too. Find the people who are already navigating your system, you know, the people who already know how to innovate, and ask them who else should be in their little group, who else we should be doing this with. And finally, and I guess, and I guess uh, more important, most importantly, show, don't tell. Stop talking about innovation. Start prototyping. Start building stuff. Start, you know, the, the iPod was originally carved out of a bar of ivory soap, for wow. crying out loud. That doesn't cost much. People can walk around with it in their pocket and talk about it. That creates momentum. Create momentum. That's amazing. Well, thank you. We're, it looks like we're out of time. Uh, thanks so much for being my guest today. Thanks and I for having me back. on, Olivia. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So next week, my guest will be Eleni Ilani Palas, and we'll be discussing 
Leaders for Good, How Disruptive Ideas Need Disruptive Leading. So be sure to tune in. And for a full description of this or other upcoming shows, as well as access to all past shows and guest bios, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning into Quantum Business Insights and have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 